This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Although sharks might look silky smooth from afar, their skin is actually rough like sandpaper. It's made up of these tiny scales called dermal denticles. They reduce friction, helping sharks swim through the ocean. And these dermal denticles are also the key to understanding a chapter in shark history. Using ancient shark skin fossils, researchers recently uncovered a previously unknown mass shark extinction. About 19 million years ago during the early Miocene, the shark population dropped by roughly 90%, and the diversity of shark species also dropped significantly, and sharks never really rebounded. The open ocean ecosystem was forever changed. Elizabeth Seibart is the study's lead author and a Hutchinson postdoctoral fellow at the Yale Institute for Biospheric Sciences at Yale University. Her research is focused on better understanding marine ecosystems from the past, present, and future. Elizabeth Seibart, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I guess to start off, did you originally go into this research with a hunch that there'd been a mass extinction? Like, how did you sort of start getting interested in this? So that's a great question. And the short answer is that we kind of had a little bit of a hunch because of some work that I'd done a few years ago, where we were just trying to figure out what the background variability of fish and shark abundances was over the last 85 million years or so. And so we went to this location in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where there was these great sediment cores that recorded the last 85 million years of Earth's history. And we looked at the abundances of sharks and fish through this the last 85 million years. And what we found was that there were a couple of big changes during that time period. One of them was at the Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction, which is the one that bumped off the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago. And then there was this other really big change about 20 million years ago. And it turns out that it's more like 19 million years ago. And at that interval, 19 million years ago, we noticed that the abundance of shark scales just kind of dropped off a cliff. They disappeared from the sediments. And so we decided that that was really worth digging into a little bit further. And so I began working with Leah Rubin, my co-author on this work. Um, Leah was an undergrad at the time and really interested in sharks. And I thought, hey, there's this really interesting thing that seems to suggest that sharks may have reduced in their abundance around 19 million years ago. I wonder if maybe they also reduced in um, diversity. And one thing that was really surprising about this interval is that there's nothing that has really happened in Earth's history around 19 million years ago that we know of. There's no big cataclysmic asteroid impact or known rapid global warming event, for example, that could cause major changes. And so we weren't expecting to find this. And then we did. And that meant we really had to start digging deeper to figure out what was actually going on. Yeah. So you had mentioned that like there was nothing to indicate of like why this might happen, like the type of things you would see, like a change in climate that would make it impossible for sharks to live in the ocean, you know, like a warming or cooling or something like that. But from your research, what are the kinds of things that you think might have caused this? The, the heart of the matter, for me anyway, is that sharks have been around on this planet for 400 million years. They've survived many different mass extinctions. They've survived rapid global warming, rapid global mm -hmm. cooling, major glaciations, and really they, they're kind of the ultimate survivors. But something around 19 million years ago nearly knocked them out anyway. And to me, that's really interesting because it, we can't just say, oh, well, sharks are known to mostly go extinct at sort of this kind of environmental change. So maybe that's right. what's happened because really sharks didn't have that kind of situation. 
we don't really know what happened, I think is the... Yeah, yeah. Sharks are super hardy creatures. <laughs> it sounds like. <laughs> they really are. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the sort of like research process. You mentioned it a little bit about how you sort of extracted these fossilized shark skins from the bottom of the ocean. Can you kind of like describe that process and like how you use that to then sort of identify that there was something going on here? Yeah. So um, this is actually when I like to give a pitch for the International Ocean Drilling Program, um, or IODP. It's actually been going on for about 50 years. And I describe it like CERN or the Hubble Space Telescope, but for Earth Sciences. Hmm. Um, and it's basically this program that goes around the world's oceans and drills into the seafloor and brings up sediments um, from really all over the world. And because sediments in the ocean accumulate from stuff that comes into the surface ocean and then sinks, the deeper in the sediment you go, the older you get. Mm -hmm. And so by digging deeper down, you get these really great records of ocean conditions. And in my case, shark and fish fossils through time. Mm -hmm. And so I actually worked on these samples that were collected by the ocean drilling program back before I was born. They were collected in the early 80s wow. and put into a <laughs> repository. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that just, I think it's one of the coolest parts of my science is that there's been this really wonderful archive of data that's collected and is constantly being added to. Um, but I was able to use sediments that were collected. One of the holes was collected before I was born. The other was collected when I was very, very young. And yet here, 20, 30 years later, I am able to go and say, these samples were really important and I want to try and learn more about what was going on in them. Um, and so what we do is we write to the repository with a proposal of what we're working on. And they send you a little box full of bags of mud. And those bags of mud have samples that are, you know, a little bit bigger than your thumb. And they are taken at very specific depths down the sediment core. And those depths correspond to specific ages. So that's how we go back in time. And what we do is we wash those samples, we prepare them, and then we look at them under a microscope. And we look at everything that's bigger than 38 microns in size. So for comparison here, your hair, a strand of your hair is somewhere between 80 and 100 microns. So the smallest stuff we're looking at is smaller than your hair. So this is tiny. Um, this is like tiny, tiny, this tiny. This is tiny. Yeah. And most of the shark denticles that we end up working with are between 100 and 300 microns in diameter. So maybe a little bit bigger than your hair, but some of them can be really, really small. And so then we take a little paintbrush and we move them around and place them on um, archival slides. We can then get high resolution images of them. And because they're so small, those high resolution images are what we actually work from. Um, and then we look at them and we look at the different patterns and morphology of those fossils. And we can look at the shape and the structure of the fossils and their ridges on top of them. And that can give us a lot of information about what the sharks were and what they were doing. Yeah. And so in doing research, there's a lot of shark research is done using the shark's teeth versus sort of the skin. Um, what's the benefit of using the skin and, and analyzing that versus using like shark teeth, for example? That's also a great question. And as you've pointed out, most shark fossils that people think about are in fact shark teeth. And we know that mm -hmm. sharks shed their teeth throughout their lifetime. 
But it turns out that their dermal denticles, their scales, they're actually made of the same material as their teeth and actually have the same genetic underpinnings. So it turns out that (laughs) sharks are actually completely covered in modified teeth. And you can actually get it out of the name. Denticle. Dent means tooth. And so sharks actually also shed their denticles. And we don't actually know how fast they shed their denticles, um, but if we make a, a baseline assumption that they shed their denticles at about the same rate that they shed their teeth, which is at least a reasonable first order guess, a shark goes through like somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 teeth in their lifetimes, but on just a square inch of their body, they have that many denticles. And so you're going to have hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of times more denticles Mm -hmm. entering the fossil record then you are going to have teeth now teeth are much bigger they are better studied and they're easier to work with Mm -hmm. but in the open ocean when we're working with these really small samples from just like a little tiny punch in the ocean floor we don't have the luxury of saying oh we want to work with like only shark teeth because they're pretty rare and the denticles because you're going to have thousands of times more than denticles than teeth are what we end up working with in those kinds of sediments. So they're small, but they can be really powerful. Wow. That's, that's so, that's so wild. I never would have like thought about sharks basically being covered in the same material as their teeth. You learn something new every day. So I want to talk a little bit about like the time period when this sort of extinction took place. So it took place during the Miocene. Can you give me sort of like sense of what the ocean was like during this time period? Like what animals would sharks be like hanging out with? Can you sort of paint a little picture for me? Like what was going on during this time period that we kind of know what was going on then? Um, So the Miocene is a really interesting time period because in a lot of ways, it's very similar to what the modern day looks like. Um, And in other ways, it's very different. So, Mm -hmm. for example, the continents, um, because continents move around due to plate tectonics, the continents are almost in the same kind of locations as they are today. However, there's some really big differences. For example, Panama is not up. So there's actually North and South America aren't connected during this Miocene interval. So you can have ocean water flowing freely between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Um, There's also, you know, Australia and India are not nearly where they are today. And so there's a lot of like little things that are a bit different about what the continents, continental configurations look like. Um, In addition to that, there's not as much ice on the planet as there is today. So, for example, the Northern Hemisphere didn't have permanent ice sheets at that point. And Antarctica did have a permanent ice sheet at this point, but it wasn't nearly as big as it is today. And so the climate was a little bit different as well. We think it was a little bit warmer. I'm mentioning all of this because I know you asked about animals. But one of the things that's interesting is that because the continents are in slightly different places and the climate's a little bit different, you're going to have different ocean circulation patterns. And those ocean circulation patterns are really what drives the kind of organisms you're going to see in the ocean. Um, That said, we see a lot of things that are pretty familiar. A lot of lineages of things like deep sea fish are common, like anglerfish are around and squids and things like that. Um, But we also see some pretty big differences. So, for example, krill, which we think of as like a really important 
food source for a lot of the animals that live in the ocean today. They weren't really a big deal as far as we can tell until mm. a little bit later. So some things are pretty familiar, some things are not. Um, mm. One thing that is actually interesting from my perspective is that while we did have whales that were alive during this time period, whales originated around 30, 35 million years ago, at least in their sort of open ocean going forms, they weren't nearly as big. And in fact, baleen hadn't really developed yet. So we didn't have the very large filter feeding whales of today. But we did have a lot of fish. And we also had a lot of sharks. And so I think that's a, it's an interesting thing to think about who the predators in the ocean were. And I think in, in the Miocene, a lot of it was going to be sharks and bigger fish. Yeah. And so then, like, how did the elimination of so many sharks sort of change the open ocean ecosystem? Like, from reading your research, it sounds like whales kind of took over that dominant role, maybe that sharks had had previously. So we like to we like to think about whales as having taken over, but it wasn't just whales. Um, mm -hmm. So sharks really were a very important part of the marine, what I call the marine vertebrate community. So that's anything with a backbone. And if we think about marine vertebrates today, we think about fish and sharks, but we also think about whales and seals and sea turtles and seabirds and otters and all of these big sort of mammal predator reptile kind of things mm -hmm. um, that are living and making a living in the open ocean. And what we've sort of saw when we went to look at this is one of the big questions we had was what killed the sharks? Why did right. they get, why did they drop so much? And one of the first thoughts was that, well, maybe it was that whales evolved and they were able to outcompete the sharks. They were basically just better suited to the marine environment than sharks were and they outcompeted them and Thus, sharks disappeared and whales took over. It would be a really neat story, except it's not true. And it's not true because of the timing of how this works. And what seems to have happened is that the sharks disappeared. And then it took several million years after the sharks disappeared for whales and sea lions and seabirds and all, and actually a lot of these large um, predator fish as well. So things like tunas and swordfish all of these large marine predators, they actually radiated two to three, even four or five million years after the shark extinction. So it wasn't that they came on the scene and then the sharks died. It was the sharks died and then they came on the scene and sort of took over afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So one of the other things was that there's this mass extinction of sharks, but then it wasn't just like the total number. It sort of diminished the diversity of the different types of sharks. Can you talk about sort of like what you know about which shark species were more likely to survive than other species? Yeah. So what we found in our research was that if you look at enough of these little teeny tiny dermal denticles, they all start to look very different. You can start trying to figure out what kinds of groups they go to. And we ended up with two broad scale groups of denticles. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've ever seen a shark scale, you might have seen something that looks a little bit like a spade from a playing card um, with some parallel ridges going to the points of the spade. And those we call linear denticles. And there's a lot of variation in there, but that's a, that's a pretty typical shark scale for today. But then we also mm -hmm. have these really gorgeous denticles that we call geometric denticles that are very rarely found on sharks today. 
And instead of having parallel ridges running along them, they have these ridge patterns that can be very intricate and interlaced and intersect in all sorts of different directions. And what's, what we observed was that the linear denticles did better after the extinction. They were the ones that survived and most of the geometric denticles did not survive. And so what we're getting here is that, well, the sharks that had geometric denticles, only a couple of them made it through this extinction. Whereas mm -hmm. the sharks that had linear denticles, a few more of them made it through the extinction. And I don't want to say that all linear denticled sharks survived because we still lost 60% of all linear denticle diversity. Um, so right. this was still a, a pretty massive extinction. Um, what I was going to add to that is that mm -hmm. you um, asked what I could say about the biology of these sharks. And one of the things mm -hmm. is that linear denticles, you might have heard of them, um, or you might recall Michael Phelps back in 2008 broke a whole bunch of world records wearing a fancy sharkskin inspired swimsuit. <laughs> and yeah, I forgot um, about it that. turns out, it turns out that that swimsuit was basically made modeling denticles because linear denticles actually dramatically reduce drag along a surface if you're a constant swimming speed organism. And so it turns out that linear denticles are often associated with sharks that undergo long distance migrations. And so what we think maybe happened is that some of these sharks that survived were able to swim longer distances and maybe get um, food from more different locations, for example than the sharks that weren't. And so that's at least one hypothesis. And we're really looking forward to digging a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. So why hasn't there been a lot of research into the Miocene epoch, I guess? Like why, why isn't there? Why is there this gap in research? There's a couple of reasons for it. One of them is the one that I just mentioned, which is that there's actually not a lot of great geologic records from this time interval. So there's just not a lot of material to work with. And we have this, a thing I learned about when I took my introduction to paleobiology class in undergrad, we call them paleontologist interest units. When something happened in geologic time that we think is interesting, like a mass extinction or a time of rapid global warming, we tend to study that interval as a scientific community a lot more in depth. And we tend to look a lot more at that particular interval. And so we know a lot about specific intervals in time, but intervals that we didn't know about or that don't look like anything major has happened, they tend to get ignored in favor of other time intervals that are more sort of interesting, if you will. And so I kind of stumbled into this extinction event because, you know, 19 million years ago, who, who'd have thought anything happened this time? But it turns out that the sharks say something must have happened that really impacted this 400 million year old clade of organisms. So something must have happened. And um, I, I hope that this research will bring some people into looking at this time interval from other perspectives. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so fascinating. So as you just said, like, we're sort of just at the beginning of understand what was going on during this time period, like while these sharks died. Um, what's this sort of like for you? What are the next couple of steps of digging into this, really getting at that sort of why? Yeah, so I think there's there's two next set of steps and sort of in two different directions. One of them is what else is going on with biology, whether that be 
sharks in other parts of the ocean? For example, did the sharks that were living near the coast see a similar extinction to what we see in the open ocean? Or did they both experience major extinctions? Of course, there's also the question about what other organisms are affected by this. Are there big changes in the fish communities, for example? Or what's going on on land? And so there's all these questions that I have about the biological side of this, trying to just document, are, is it just the sharks or were there other organisms that were affected? And if so, how were they affected? Because I think that will give us some clues as to what caused the shark extinction in the first place. But the other side of this, of course, is what was going on in the ocean environment. So was there some kind of major warming or cooling event that happened very, very rapidly that we just haven't recorded in the sediment record yet? And so there's sort of two sides of this, is the biology and the environment. And I think both of those are really important next steps. And I hope that I won't do it alone. I hope that this is going <laughs> to spark a lot of interest in other folks who are experts in those fields. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope so, too. I think to me, it feels kind of wild um, to sort of discover that there was just so many sharks roaming around. And to me, at least, it seems like, I don't know, it seems like if you keep digging based on the other sort of examples that you um, had given, there's definitely a lot more there, you know, than just the sharks. There's kind of has to be something else there going on, you know? I think there probably is. And I think one of the the things is that I keep saying is that I think the sharks are trying to tell us something. You don't lose 90% of the largest predators in your ecosystem without something big happening. And I think it would be really exciting to figure out what it is that they're trying to share. Um, because something clearly happened. And I it's going to be interesting to see what it was. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to kind of bring us into the present. So like right now we're seeing sharks... Um, numbers dwindling also, um, likely from sort of climate change related factors, among other things. So what can this like past extinction event sort of help us understand about the current situation facing sharks? I think there's a couple of, of things that you can learn from looking at past extinctions and this extinction in particular. And I think one of them is that you know, when you have major extinctions of predators in the ocean, and today we're talking about, you know, major extinctions of sharks and dramatic reductions in their abundance. But also, if you go back 200 years to commercial whaling, whale populations used to be 90 to 95 percent bigger than they are today. Like when you lose large predators in the ocean, that can really change the ecosystem and the structure of who is in that ecosystem. And I think I mentioned that there are two big changes over the last 85 million years in the ratio of shark to fish fossils in deep sea sediments. One of those changes was at the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction and when the ratio of shark fossils to fish fossils went from about one to one. So it was about equal numbers of sharks and fish fossils. And it went from one to one to about one shark fossil for every five fish fossils that we were finding. Um, I should note that doesn't mean one shark to every five fish. Um, this is just the metric of fossils that we have. But the thing is that the only other time that that ratio has changed was this event 19 million years ago when we went from one shark and five fish fossils to less than one shark fossil for every hundred fish fossils. So we're talking about a really big shift here. And the thing is that the shark populations never recovered. 
and the ecosystem never looked the same again. And I think that this suggests that there are sort of tipping points in ecosystems where if you push things too far one direction, they don't necessarily bounce back. And so I think that's one way to look at it is that right now we humans are really pushing the ecosystem very hard in one direction. Um, we're very rapidly overfishing not just the sharks, but of course, larger fish and even smaller fish these days. And we killed off a lot of the whale populations. And so there's a big change in what's going on in the, in the large organisms. And I think that if we're not careful, we are going to cross some kind of threshold. And, you know, 10,000 or a million years from now, if we look back, we might see something that looks very similar to this tipping point. I will also say that it gives me a lot of hope in another way, because of course, sharks didn't go extinct at this interval. A lot of them disappeared, but some of them survived. And the ecosystem that came after is a really spectacular one. And so, yes, there's a lot of change, but I think there's also one of the things that I get from studying mass extinctions is this overwhelming sense that our planet is a resilient one and that it may look really different but life still finds a way. And I think that's another lesson that I take away from this. And I think you have to, if you're studying mass extinctions all the time, um, is that it's not all doom and gloom. It's just going to look a little different. And we have to figure out how we want to live with that. Yeah. And I think that that's a great note to end on here. A little bit of positivity. Elizabeth Seibert is a Hutchinson postdoctoral fellow at the Yale Institute for Biospheric Science at Yale University. Her latest study was published in the journal Science. Thank you again for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.